I'm going to open up in prayer specifically for the text that we're going to be covering tonight. I want to open up first thing, um, just praying over this, that God would lead us in this, uh, that His Holy Spirit would just come in um, and just move in our hearts in a, in a mighty way. There's some deep truths that we're going to dig into tonight. Um, and I just want all of you to be praying for me specifically as I... Uh, walk you through this text. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. And for the sake of not scaring y'all off on how far we're going to go, I'm just not going to, not going to tell you. Um, so y'all just be praying for me over this. So a couple of weeks back, probably three or so weeks back, I've been prepping you for what we're going to enter into tonight, so I pray that many of you heeded the words of warning that I gave you to go ahead and be studying up ahead of time on this text so that you could be ready tonight as we dig through it. So as we open up in prayer, pray for me that I would um, do justice to the text, that I would speak the truth of God's Word led by a Spirit, that I would speak uh, nothing of my own um, but only the truth of God's Word. And pray also that if I were to speak something falsely, that the Holy Spirit would graciously close your ears to it. Um, I, I in no way uh, ever desire to lead astray. And this is why I have given warnings leading up to what we're going to be hitting in tonight. And I'm going to, as we open up after prayer, kind of give you some heads up on where specifically to be uh, attentive and listening. And um, what I would tell you is make me work to justify the position in which I stand on this particular passage of text. Okay? Um, I love y'all. I want to teach you the truth of God's Word, but I also understand that I am uh, human and fallible. Um, so when I, when, when I, and I will pr- pray that I always give you warning ahead of times in any places that in my study I would tend to vary from what I would consider to be good, wise, orthodox positions on particular passages of text by studied people who have shown patterns throughout their lives of loving God consistently, right? I, I look to those kind of men and I, and I, and I, and I seek to one day be that kind of man as well. Uh, so in that, um, I just ask that you would uh, be attentive tonight in this and just pray with me uh, along this, uh, this study that we would um, see the truth of God's Word in such a way uh, that it would uh, transform the way that we live. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this day. I thank You for the love that You have poured out on each and every one of us. I thank You for Christ. I thank You for the cross. I thank You for the Gospel and the hope that we have only in Christ and only through Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as we dig through this text, which I myself wrestle with and grapple with, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would speak in such a way uh, that only the truth of Your Word would come forth tonight. Um, Lord, I seek in all that I do here in this calling that You've placed on me uh, to, to let You be the center and the focus and the truth of Your Word be what uh, I speak, Lord. And I know, uh, fallible man that I am, that I am bound over the lifetime that You give me to speak 
things in error. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be gracious to those who would ever hear words of error come from me, that you would uh, give them ears and hearts of discernment, um, and that you would also, because I know that I have brothers in here who are also men of God seeking to preach the Word of God faithfully, that, that you would give us here at Mount Carmel uh, many men who are bold enough and love you enough to hold one another accountable to your Word, and also that we would be gentle in it, knowing that we are fallible. Um, Lord, this is where we rely on your Holy Spirit, um, knowing that you are sovereign over each and everything, even where men have been foolish, Lord, the hope that we have in Romans eight twenty eight is that you work even the folly of men, ultimately for the glory of your people, your called, your church, Lord. And I, I just pray tonight that uh, we would have a deep sense of respect for your word, a deep reliance on the Holy Spirit to lead us through your word, and that you would give me clarity of thought, um, that the preparation that I've put into this study tonight, um, that you would just give give me the grace that it would come forth clearly um, to the ears of those who would hear it. I thank you. I love you. Uh, I love your word, and I just pray that I would be a man who would uh, preach it faithfully uh, for your glory and the glory of Christ. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 7 tonight. Uh, we're going to start in verse 7. We, we left off last week. Verse 6. Um, this particular pat It is awfully quiet in here. Everybody's listening intently. <laughs> the particular run of text, right? That when we get there, what I want you to, to know is that, that I interpret this particular run of text in a way that... That for most parts, the men that I would look to and study, and I'll go ahead and name them because these would be men that as I study, I, I rely on them for their word on what they, how they interpret particular passages of text. So I'm going to go ahead and name a couple for you so that you could go and you can most, I'll name a couple that are alive. You can go look them up on YouTube. Um, probably have particular sermons that they've preached on this particular passage text. And I would say go, be, it would be God-honoring to, to be wise in um, taking on much counsel when it comes to God's Word. So one man that I respect deeply because I think that he has an absolute heart for the truth of Scripture and respect for Scripture, John MacArthur. Um, many of you may have his study Bible, so what I would say is if you do... You know, after tonight's sermon, follow through with what his study Bible would say and just let God's Spirit lead you in this. Uh, another man, John Piper, um, again, he has much on YouTube that you can follow. Um, these are both guys, and, and if they were to ever, they probably would never hear my sermon, but I put it online. So just in case, if any of them were to ever hear this, um, when I say that they're older, I say that with much respect, right? These are some old guys. And they've been doing this for a long time. And that's a good thing, right? So, so that's wise counsel. So uh, John MacArthur, John Piper will be two men that are alive today that I would say, you know, go and look at what they have to say on this particular subject matter. 
Um, Matthew Henry has a commentary that is excellent. Um, that commentary has some on Romans. Um, I don't know that he wrote every single bit on Romans. I think that he wrote some and that, I mean, he was doing a full Bible commentary dive and other men came in and kind of helped put the pieces together there. But that, again, is another good source, good resource to kind of look to there. So go look, go look to those things as, as we kind of get into the text here. Um, one thing that I would, one thing that I would say in this, I wanted you, I want you to be attentive to what I say. So I throw these warnings out there, but one thing that I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going heretical on you, okay? So what you hear, if you were, if you were really studied ahead of time on what they were to say about these particular passages of text, then you would notice where I differ, right? There's a good likelihood that if I had not mentioned these things up front to you, that it would have just passed over and you, you never have let it, you know, it would have never thrown a, a red flag to you. But I bring it up to you because as I look at it, I find myself, as I dig through this text, these are particular places where I have a particular view, but I find myself, oftentimes, as I look at it and I read them, and I'm like, I see where they're coming from. And then I have like this thing, in the, and it says, but, but, right? I see where they're coming from, but, and then I'm going to try to convince you of the other, that big thing in the back of my head that's saying, but, what about this? What about this, right? So just pray as we dig through this, as we get to that particular passage text, chapter 7, verse 14 through verse uh, 23 particularly. Um, actually, you could probably go through the end of the, through the, end of the chapter there um, for digging this kind of this difficult to wrestle out passage of text. So um, up to this point, we've been seeing a particular truth that I hope has come out clear. Because if it's come out clear, then the point that I've been, that I'm gonna to try to make when we get into chapter 7, 14 through the end, should be easy for you to see, right? If I've done what I've been praying and hoping to do up to this point, then when we get there, it's not gonna take much convincing because the Holy Spirit will have already led you to this truth before we ever got there, right? So I've been praying and working diligently up to this point, trying to convince you of a particular truth. Then when we get here, we're going to have to wrestle with what's going on, but there's going to be a clear truth that we've seen through Scripture, testified up to this point, that should help guide us in our wrestling through these things. All right, so let's start back. Actually, here's, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to do a quick review and this is one of those hard things. As, as we um, dig through this tonight, know that I've wrestled in my mind between breaking this, this up into two sermons, breaking up into three sermons, um, doing it tonight as one sermon. There's a, there's a particular train of thought that I want us to carry on here, that we're going to do it in one sermon. All right, so just pray for me for brevity of time. You know, I only want to take up enough of your time that we can get the truth across clearly, not too much that you all fall asleep, right? So we're going to be pushing into chapter 8, and this is the truth. In chapter 8, this is the truth that we are pushing 
towards, right? So chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, right? And this is where I've kind of been telling you ahead of time last week, I kind of mentioned as you study this text, try not to just say it's the end of chapter 7 so the thought ends there because that's not what happens. What we're going to find is that this train of thought follows through and really flows naturally into chapter 8 and having to just figure out a place to stop because y'all would absolutely all of you be gone and glassy-eyed by the end of chapter 8. I've decided we'll stop at chapter 8, verse 4. But this idea that we're going to see here, chapter 8, verse 3, as we step back, I want in your minds you to be focused on this is where we're working towards. This is the point of all that Paul is saying in the latter part of chapter 7. He's trying to lead us to this particular truth, right? So if you only, if you clocked out after what I'm about to say, take this home with you at least. What's said in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. Chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. Turn there if you're not there. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I'm going to read it one more time. And follow along with me if you would. This is an absolute critical passage of text for understanding what we're going to go back through and dig into, right? Verse 3, chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done, right? Who has done the work? When we look back in chapter 1 of Romans, and we look at this chapter 1, 16, whose power is it for salvation? Whose power is it from beginning to end for salvation? Then why is it that so often times we think that it's ours? We feel as though it's ours and that we must. Right? We do. We do. Which is why you are going to feel so at home at the end of chapter 7. Because you are familiar with Something there. Something there will grip you. And unfortunately, make you feel as though you were a slave when you are not slaves. Right? So what I want us to do here is look at the truth of this, understanding that Paul's trying to tell us something critical. Something absolutely that you cannot miss as a believer, as a Christian. You must know That your salvation rests not in your efforts. Not from the beginning, not through the middle, and not at the end. It is the power of God at work. Right? This is the Gospel that we hold to, church. This is the Gospel, right? So, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk how? 
who walk how. And this is the part that I don't want you to miss as we dig into the end of chapter 7. I want you to know where Paul is stepping towards, right? We walk not according to the flesh. Believer, he's speaking to you. You do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What have we been digging into as we've been looking at chapter, the end of chapter 5 and on through chapter 6? What have we been kind of digging into? This idea of post-justification, the life of the believer. Right? This life in which you find yourself not stepped forward fully into the promises of God. You're not there yet. You're in this in-between state where you find yourself wrestling with sin. You still battle with it. You still war with it. But you find yourself, you should find yourself making progress towards holiness. Right? There should be a pattern of moving forward in holiness in your life. And this is true not because you've made yourself holy, but because the Spirit of God makes you holy. Right? This is the work of sanctification that's taking place in our life. It's not always easy. It's not always immediate. It doesn't always move linearly. Linearly. Sometimes there's places where it may feel like we're making no progress and then sometimes we may take off because we heard a particular message or a particular truth stuck with us, right? We don't always get what's going on, but we know, but we know that it is the Spirit moving us forward. Right? This is what I want you to know, and this is why I want us to, to kind of step forward to eight there so that we can know that we're stepping forward to this. So that as we step into these passages of text where it's going to seem as though Paul may be saying that he's a slave to sin, what do we know that Paul's already told us? What has he told us multiple times through chapter 6? Chapter 6, verse 6. So again, let's back up chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came. So this is where this, this kind of idea starts really unfolding. Folding big time. Back in chapter 5. Now the law came in order to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul in chapter 6 starts kind of unwrapping, kind of unpacking that idea, asking various questions along the way. He gets to chapter 6, verse 14, and this is part of the review. For sin will have no dominion over you, right? Previously in chapter 6, just so that you, so that we remind ourselves before we get into this passage where we're going to wrestle, so that we remind ourselves of what Paul has clearly told us beforehand, right? Chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old sinful self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. You believer, you, believer, listen to me. Christians, church, you are free from the dominion of sin. You do, you are not ob- obligated to listen to its commands. You can resist and he will flee from you. You are not slaves of sin. And Paul is not schizophrenic when we get there. Paul has not forgot what he's trying to tell you. He's trying to drive home a point to us that it is the power of God at work. From faith to faith. From faith 
for faith. He started the work. He will finish the work. Right? This is the idea. And Paul's going to drive this home. Right? So we've started off in chapter 7, verse 1. A couple of... Was it last week, I think? Chapter 7... Verse 1, we're now, after laying all of these things out, he's put things out there where it would almost seem like, what are you saying about the law, man? It almost seems like you've got some disdain for the law, like you just have this, like, like Paul, you couldn't keep it, so now you just seem like you just rejected it outright, right? He seems, for the Jewish believer, for the one raised up in this culture with this heritage, he would love the law, cherish the law, it was a gift of God to the Jewish people to keep, right? We have well, the Old Testament today because they were faithful in keeping it along the way, right? They cherished the law. They loved the law. If you told them, if you found a Jew today and said, you don't really love the law, they're going to be like, you must be a fool because I love the law. I was raised on the law. It's you, Christian, who have rejected it. It's you who have said you don't need it. It's you who have said you're not under the law, but under grace. So we've gotten to this point through this discussion of being under grace where we find ourselves having to deal with where's the place, where's the position, where does the law fit in all of this? And Paul's been kind of trying to get that out. So he's asked a couple of questions. Verse 7, chapter or verse 1, chapter 7, Do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law. So the context, the immediate context of all the things that we're kind of digging through in chapter 7 here, I'd be speaking to those who had a familiarity with the law. Um, I would say that these were people well acquainted with the law, with the kind of discussion that he's digging into here. And he's posed a couple of different things along the way. Um, chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, and then we'll start off into the new text and hopefully lead to, um, I, I pray, a, a, a deep reverence for our reliance on uh, God's power um, to lead us. Uh, verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And at this point, it would sound to the ears of those who loved and cherished the law as though Paul was at the end of his rope with the law. Held captive to it. Held captive to the law. Right? Like the Jewish believer here would absolutely be fuming over this. The law is life to you, they would say. The law is life to you. And what we're going to find Paul saying is that thing which he hoped would bring life brought death instead. And then in this, we're going to find, I pray, where the law fits what the law's purpose is, we'll address that first, and why we must be dead to the law, right? This is ultimately what he's trying to get at at the end of this, is why we must be dead to the law, why he keeps using this language of dead to the law. Chapter 7, verse 7, What shall we say then? Or what then shall we say? That the law is sin, and what does he say? 
Is the law sin? Is the law sin? So let's be clear on this. The law is not sinful. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. The law comes directly from the mouth of a righteous God. So the law is good. The problem never was the law, right? What do we find when we kind of peek forward into chapter 8, verse 3? The law, we can buy what? The flesh. By you, the, the problem was never the standard of the law because the law is good. The problem lies with you, right? The problem is in you. It's you who cannot keep the law. It's you who by the law, sin rises up to take you captive. So when Paul uses the language of being held captive, it was not as though you were held captive by the law, but because of the law and your knowledge of the law, your sin has risen up and it's come alive and you have died because of your sin. So that thing which was going to give life, which you thought would give life, is now given death instead. So what is then the purpose of the law? If not to give life, then what is the purpose of the law? Yet, so he says, by no means, so the law is not sinful. Chapter 7, verse 7, the second, third sentence there. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So here, I want you to understand that in the gospel... When we lay out the gospel, the law finds its proper place. I want you to get that. That the law cannot give you life. You will not live by following the law. Because you cannot. You will find that it absolutely kills you. The law is weak in that regard. Right? So, can the law give you life? Could it ever give you life? To the Jew, can the law give life? What does the law do then? It exposes sin. This is absolutely the truth. The purpose of the law is to reveal the sinfulness of man's heart. The purpose of the law is to show the absolute depravity of man. If you want to know why you need the gospel, try to keep the Ten Commandments. If you want to know why you need the gospel, try to keep the first commandment. Have no other God. And do you know what you will find in trying to find life in the law? Sin slays you dead by the law. And condemns you by it. The law shows you your need for the gospel. So the place when the gospel is laid out in the fullness of time now. And we see Christ on the scene. The purpose of the law is to show the absolute need for Christ. The purpose of the law is to show the absolute need for Christ. So let's dig on in. For I wouldn't, so he gives a specific example here. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So what does sin do? When faced with the law. These are some things that we need to get out there. Because when we dig into this, this is going to help us to understand why it is that we must die to it. Right? Why it is that we must be united in Christ. That when we see all this wording through these chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, through Christ in Christ, through Christ in Christ, through Christ in Christ. And when you think, as a believer, how it is that you're going to live your Christian life, you do not think in keeping the Ten Commandments. Do you follow me? Are you yet? Because here's the problem. We've gotten so legalistic in our ideas of what it means to be a Christian and how we live our Christian lives that we find ourselves in a similar position that the Jews would have found themselves. Where we think that it's by our power. Right? That we do the law and we're made righteous as we do the law. Now, we'll say, okay, we needed Jesus, right? We needed Jesus to kind of clean the slate off, give us a fresh position to start from. And now, I'll do my thing. Now, I'll do my part. I'll put my work in. This is the mentality that we get ourselves into here. So, what Paul wants to show here, because he's already shown. That we're justified through the grace of God, through the work of Christ alone, right? In this, when we get done with chapter 7, my prayer is, as that as we burst forth into chapter 8, that you have a new respect for chapter 8, for the way that Paul ends chapter 7, right? That's my hope in this. Is that as we see this, we see that it is not going to be by our works, by our efforts, but that the walk that we walk, we must walk in the Spirit, right? And I, I hope that some of you are saying, well, what does that walk look like? What does a walk in the Spirit look like? We're going to see that as we press on through Romans, right? Paul's laying these things down. He's not just going to leave us at the end of the book. Like, what does it look like to walk a spiritual walk? What does it look like to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh? How does a Christian life look different from a life lived in the flesh, right? These are things that we're going to dig through as we push through this, as we push through this book. So, here we get this example. Sin rising up in the covetousness. See not to covet. What do we do when we see not to covet? We covet, right? We covet. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now this is not to say that apart from the law there is no sin. Because what is the result of sin? Death. What happened before the law was ever given? The flood. And a whole lot of death. Right? whole lot of death. Everybody... From the time of Adam, we've covered this. This should be also reviewed. Everybody from the time of Adam to the time of Moses did what? They died. So what this is not saying is that before the law came, sin was dead in the sense that it didn't count for anybody. What this is saying is that when the law is presented, sin is most clearly seen. 
Because sin is rebellious against the commands of God. So when God gave the law, did it squelch out the sin of the people of Israel? No. Sin abounded. This is where we go back. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Chapter 5, verse 20. Right? So when the law came in, sin rose up in rebellion against the command of God. And what happens to a people when this happens? So apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So the the law... Do you think... Here's the thing. This is where I want us to start digging into this. Was Paul alive before the law came? Was he alive? In a real sense. Here's what I want us to, I want to tell you that before Christ, we were all dead in our trespasses. So what Paul is saying here is not that. He was alive before that. But that he felt alive in that. Right? And then he learns the law. He learns the commands and he finds that he's not alive, but he's dead. The very thing that he hoped for, the very thing that his entire culture had led him to believe was hope for life proved to be for him death instead. I can't do it. I can't keep it. Nor could you now. Apart from what? So as we start digging into this, I want to give you now, before we kind of get there, my idea of what Paul's trying to do. Okay? And I want to try to lay it out as clearly as possible for you. So there are some, and there are many that I would respect in their teaching, who would say that as we dig down into that next piece of text that I've kind of warned you about, that Paul is speaking of how he is currently now. The state that he is in now. And the butt that goes off in the flashing light that goes off in the back of my head to think that thought is what has he been telling us to now tell us that we're slaves? Has he been promising life to us only to pull the rug out from us? I can't believe that to be true. So here's what I believe Paul is doing here. I believe Paul wanting to convince those who had this admonition for law bringing life, he wanted to convince them without question that the law is powerless because you are sinful. Right? So I don't believe that Paul is speaking of the state in which he lives. I believe that the text prior to this and the text after this seems to me to contradict that statement. What I believe is that Paul is very acquainted with this style of living. And for the sake of showing the need of life in the Spirit, because that's what this whole thing is about. As believers, we walk what? Not in the flesh, but in what? The Spirit. This is about a spiritual life. So to show us that it must be in the Spirit... Paul stops and thinks about who he was, the life he lived, the law that he could not keep. And then, for the sake of argument, he said, I'm going to set aside for a moment the one good thing that's in me. The one good thing that's in me. And I'm going to tell you what it would look like. If not for that, you would find a man 
whose mind had been awakened to good and could not do good. Who absolutely could not. You would find a man enslaved to the flesh. And here's what I want to tell you. Here's what I want to tell you, that every single one of you, if you were not raised to life in the same power that Christ was raised to life, would be nothing but enlightened slaves to sin. Nothing but enlightened slaves to sin. But, you do not walk in the flesh, you walk in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is in you, and if He's not in you, you don't belong to Christ. Continue on in chapter 8. We're going to get there next week. Right? This is where I say this idea flows through into chapter 8. So let's continue along with this thought. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Did it really kill him? He was already dead. The law awakened his eyes to the state in which he was in. It killed him. It sucked the wind out of who he thought that he was. That's what happens when we examine ourselves by the Word of God, by the law of God, we find that we fall short of it. The only hope that we have is to be justified by God through the work of Christ and carried forward into life by the life-giving Holy Spirit. Right? This is the life that we have as believers. That's the, that's what I want you to get at. I want you to understand that. You could be in a desperate state. But God did more than just awaken your minds when He brought the gospel to you. He, He breathed life into you by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the hope in which we stand. This is why through chapter 7 there's this need to understand who you are in Christ, through Christ, joined with Christ in the death of Christ, raised to newness of life in the life of Christ. Right? This is the hope that we have. This is where we stand. This is who we are as believers. Are y'all following me still? I pray that nobody's gone to sleep yet. I I know that this is going to take us some time to wrestle through. I believe that God has been working in you over the last couple of weeks to to give you an attention span longer than 15 minutes. Thank you, Jesus. Y'all are all actually watching me. This is amazing. (laughs) Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Let's continue on. So, verse 12, so the law. So the, at the end of this, what Paul wants to do is he wants to show this idea that Paul's been dogging the law is not true. He's not been dogging the law. He's not been, but you must be dead to the law because you were a slave to the law. Right? So the law is what? The law is holy. What does the Scripture say? What does Paul here say? The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So what should we know about the law of God? It exposes who we are, and our nature, and our need for resting in the work of Christ. 
And this is something that starts the moment that he awakens us to it and continues for eternity. In eternity, you will rest renewed, not in your own efforts, but in the work of God. Renewed by God. right? Kept and held by God. There will never come a day where you are independent from a, from a reliance on Him. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Our hope is not one day to become autonomous. Creatures that live on their own. But we're being shown just how much we need to rest in Him. And I would, I would say that God probably has allowed and has worked a world out in the way that He has done it so that when we get forward into heaven, even the angels who never sin will know that it is by the grace of God. It is by the grace of God alone. And Paul is using this and working this out in such a way. The gospel is such a gospel that there is no part of it where we earn praise. Right? There is no part of it where we earn praise. Not from the start, not through the working out, and not at the end. It is completely whose power? God's power for salvation. And in glory, the sound of the songs that ring from our lips will not ring with pride that is selfish pride. But pride that rests in a crucified King. Right? This is the idea that's worked out throughout this wrestling in the gospel is so that we don't think that we were given a clean slate and now we walk on and we do it by keeping the law. No, no. We were cleaned. We were placed in a position given the righteousness of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit to live lives that glorify God even in the struggles. And this is what we're going to find. This is what we're going to find as we dig through this text. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the good thing bring death? Did the good thing bring death? Can a good thing bring death? And this is what I'm telling you. That beforehand when Paul thought he was alive, You thought you were alive before you met Christ. You thought you had life. But all you had was death and ashes. The fruit of everything that you did was death. You did not have life. Did that which is good bring death to me? And his answer to this, by no means. What was it? What was it? It was sin producing death in me through what is good and order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might be might become sinful beyond measure. And this part here, I'm going to read it again and then I want us to reflect back on what we see at the end of chapter 5. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Back in verse 20, 21 of chapter 5. Now the law came 
to increase trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Through who? Through who? Our life, our hope, our all. Through who? Through Christ, Jesus our Lord. Rest in that, know that to be true. Do not stray from that to the left or to the right. Your hope is in Christ alone. Christ alone. Hold to that. Please hold to that. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but... So here's... And and I'm going to read the end of this, and then we're going to reflect again on things that we've seen. And we're going to start kind of digging through this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Is is I want us to think about this. I want us to think about this. What has Paul told us already, and what have we already glimpsed in the future and seen that he's told us? That you're not slaves to sin. And I want to show you specific verses. Verse, and this is in the, this is in the close context of where we're at. Right? I could go all through chapter six. We could go over to chapter eight and I could go all through chapter eight. Verse five of chapter seven. For while we were living in the flesh. What does that cause us to conclude? While we were living in the flesh. That's not a current state of existence for you believers. You are not, as a believer, you are not living in the flesh. You are living in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is in you, and if He is not in you, then you are not His. This is Scripture. We'll get there next week. This is what I want you to get, that if the Spirit of God is not dwelling in you, you are not His. And if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, then you walk in what? The Spirit, and not in one. The flesh. It has no dominion over you. Because you've died to it. So what is Paul here saying then? And this is, this is, why, this is one place I would say, go, go listen to some other preachers on this. Right? Let, please ultimately let God lead you in this. Because all men are fallible. Right? But it seems to me, and through studying time and time again and wrestling with this and digging in this, I'm here saying that Paul is not giving up on what he said before. I'm saying that Paul is not saying now, well, I'm a slave to sin. So I think Paul's trying to get at something else. And that something else is, in its ultimate sense and purpose, to break us free from this idea that we will, right? Or that we could, right? To break away from you the idea that you will have life in anything other than Christ Himself. If you think that to be true, you are a fool in thinking that. Repent and come to Christ. The only place you will find life is in Christ. The only way that you will live holy is through Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit that dwells in you as a believer. Do we understand this to be true? 
So I want us to read through this. I want us to start in 14, and I want us to just read through and let God's Word speak in this. And as we do, here's what I want you to do for me. If you are a believer, I want you, and this should be a fearful thought. This should be an absolute fearful thought for us, that we would live this life not empowered by God's Spirit. That we would live our lives knowing that the law is good, but weak because we can't do it. Because here's the truth, if God were to remove His Spirit from you, you could not. Right? If you did not live daily in the Spirit, this is what you would have hope for. And this is what I want to tell you. This is what I want to tell you. This is what I want us to land on when we land in chapter 8. That the gospel is bigger than what you thought it was. Right? It is bigger than what you thought it was. It provides more hope. It provides more power. It provides more security. It provides more blessings. It's a better gospel. The gospel is a better gospel than what we think it is. It is not a lesser gospel. right? So that's where I want us to be. So to get there, to get there, and I believe this is what Paul is getting at when he says what he says in this run here. Is he is imagining for you that life where you knew but were not in power. Right? Can y'all follow me there? Is that, is that clear enough what I want you to get at? I want you to think of the Christian life in which God opened your eyes to the truth but did not empower you to live the truth. Right? This is what it would look like. This is what it would look like. And as we read this, know that you have a greater hope than this. Know that. Know that this is not the end of the thought. Everybody get there if you would. Chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And I want to pause here for a minute. Right? I want to pause here. That as we read through this and as we imagine this, we even see a glimpse of Paul here giving us an idea of there's something more. There's something more. Right? Because he doesn't just... He doesn't just end it at that. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Right? That if we were left to our own devices, if we were left to ourselves, what good could we do? None. Your ability to do good comes from who? 
from God Himself in a life lived in the Spirit. Because in your flesh, were you to live there, there is no good thing. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. The life lived in the, fre- in the flesh there. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Without Christ, know this to be true. Without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, wretched man. That I am. And he asks the question, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who has come to deliver you from this body of death? And who do you place your hope? Where do you find your life? Thanks be to who? For eternity, friends. For eternity, thanks be to who? For eternity, you will sing praises to whose name? Because whose work is being done here? Thanks be to God. Because if God had just cleaned your slate and left you to do it yourself, do you know what you would find? That you were hopeless. That you were miserable. That you need God to live. That your life is found in Him and Him alone. And this is where you are, believers. Do you get that? That you say, thanks be to God. Do you realize who you are in Him? Do you realize what He has done for you in Christ? Thanks be to who? Thanks be to who? Thanks be to God and God alone for eternity. Thanks be to God and God alone. And He lets us struggle so that when we get there, there will no, there will be no I did it. There will be thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that He did not just tell us what to do and let us figure it out for ourselves. Thanks be to to God that He did not just give us a law and let us fall and fall and fall in our weak flesh, but He's empowered us, He's empowered you by the Holy Spirit so that you walk not in the flesh, but in what? The Spirit. You walk in the Spirit. You walk in newness of life. This is what it is to be sanctified. The power of God is working in you to make you holy, and He will not fail in that. He will not fail in that. Do you hear me? Do you understand that? Do you get that? 
from start to finish. It's God's power, God's work, that thanks will be given to God and God alone. That it will be, it will not be thanks be to God and oh, you did your part too. That the gospel that we hold to is the power of God for salvation. The power of who? It's God's power working in us. And He will not fail in this. There's so much comfort. There's so much comfort as I get up here and I've been preaching. I know Kip, you've been, man, there's no telling how many times that you've probably stood and thought, seems all kinds of dead. Seems all kinds of dead. And you preach. And you preach. And we preach. And we preach. And we know that God breathes life. And that God will not fail. And that when we get there and all things are accounted for, they will have all worked out good. It will all have worked out into accordance with His plan. We trust in this. This is the Gospel that we rest in. Right? This is a gospel that I think is bigger than what we, than what we thought it to be. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then there's this little piece here, and this is again, this is kind of the, the, the teacher in me, and I, and, and I want to say here, um, chapter 7 doesn't end the thought. Right? So if, in the way that you interpret Scripture, you come to the end of passages, and you're like, well, they put the end of the chapter there, so that must be the end of the thought. Therefore, whatever's said there must come with some conclusion to it. Think again, because it does not. This that he's talking about. So thanks be, if I were gonna, if I were gonna do chapter endings, I would have probably put it, I would have probably split the last part of that and put that last part in chapter eight. Because what a way to end a chapter would be, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But whoever numbered this thing decided different than me. Alright, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna not stop at chapter endings. We're gonna follow thoughts through not necessarily to their full conclusion, but at least to a conclusion that we can stop with and say, hey, we'll pick up there next week, right? So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And now I ask the question here, can you serve two masters? What does he appear to be doing here? It, 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 it kind of seems like he's serving two masters. Especially if we chop the end of the verse off there. Right? Or the end of the chapter, excuse me. If we were just in the chapter there, it would seem a whole lot like he's talking about two masters. But there's three different things that are going on here. There's the mind, there's the flesh, there's the spirit. Right? The mind, the flesh, the spirit. You do not follow or chase after what? Let's follow along the text and see. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those... This is chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who are you in? Who are you in? So what does that mean for you? No condemnation. Right? What did the law do? It condemned. It can't condemn you. Do you know why it can't condemn you? Because you've died to it. This is what Paul's been trying to get at all along. Right? He's been telling us time and time and time and time again. Died to the law. You are in who? Raised to life in who? 
in Christ. And so, there is no condemnation for you. You have a new bride. Chapter 5, verse 20. Right? Do y'all see how long these ideas run? This is what I want to... I, I hope not only to preach to you, but maybe to teach you how to study God's Word. Like, that's kind of an ulterior motive that I have in the style of preaching that I try to, to do before you. So you see that in your own personal study time. If you just flip to the end of chapter 7 and say, I'm going to spend a little time at the end of chapter 7, and you miss everything else before and after that you might possibly, might possibly take something out of context. If the thought, if the thought that he's just now starting to bring to conclusion, he started at the end of chapter 5. Let's let's look at this. Let's look at this. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He started talking about the law where? Verse 20, chapter 5. Now the law came in to increase trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded. Do you know what grace does it sets you free in grace there is no more condemnation right so now in chapter 8 there is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus which begs the question for you are you in Christ Jesus verse 2 for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. In who? Christ Jesus. In who? Through who? By who? To who will the glory be given? To God and the Lamb who was slain. That's who. That's who. I'm sweating up here. Therefore there... Or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I read it again because I love that text. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What was he talking about at the end of chapter 7? With my flesh I serve what? The law of sin, but what has... Christ brought something better, something that sets us free from what? The law of sin and death, if we would just continue a little further in the text. Verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, why is it that in Christ there is no more condemnation? Because the price of that condemnation was paid in full in the work of Christ on the cross. And this is why central to the gospel is what? Christ and the cross. Crucified, buried, raised. Crucified, buried, raised. And in each one of those, we find ourselves joined with Him. Do you get that? That you believers are in Christ. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? Do you you follow what that is leading us to? You try to do the law, why? Here's what I'm telling you. When you live your life, and your life is centered and focused on just checking off the list, here's what's up. It's already been done. You already have that. When God looks at you, do you know what He finds? The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Through the work of Christ, the law has been fulfilled in you, for you. When God looks at you, believer, follow me here. You stand holy before Him. You stand holy before Him. Not under condemnation, right? Not as though there's one more thing you've got to do first. You stand fully righteous because you stand not of your own works, not in your own position, but a position given to you by the death, burial, resurrection of Christ Himself. This is the Gospel. And for us, this this people, that the, the righteousness of the law, this righteous requirement has been fulfilled in us, how do we walk? Who walk not according to the flesh? Now, let's step back. Chapter 7, end of chapter 7. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Doesn't even matter. Because that's not the way we live. That's not the way we walk. That's not who you are. You are not a people who walk in the flesh. You are a people who walk in newness of life. You are a people who have been given the Spirit of God. We're going we're gonna to cover that next week. This is a powerful truth for us. That you are empowered by God's Spirit. You walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. You've been set free by the work of Christ so that you can walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want us to close in prayer there and then we'll do a little bit of worship. I just My prayer is that that who we are and where we stand and the truth of the gospel, that it would weigh heavy on us, um, that we would get, that God would grant to us um, clearer and clearer understanding um, of the gospel, what it's done, what it means for us, the standing in which He's placed us, and ultimately what's taking place now, like, like what's it about, Right? If it's not about checking the list off anymore, what's it about? Right? What does it mean for us to be walking in the Spirit? These are things that, that should just naturally come to our minds as we hit texts like this. So let's, let's pray that over the next coming weeks that God would just reveal more and more of His truth to us. Lord, I thank You. Um, you are so holy and You are so worthy um, Lord, I, I know that I fail and, and I fall short. Um, 
that, that I'm limited in my abilities, Lord, that, um, that probably as I walk out the door, I'll think, oh, I should have said this. Also, um, I thank you that you are a holy God, um, and I, I pray that the efforts and the work that has gone into this would be one that would glorify you ultimately, um, Lord, that, that we would all uh, be brought closer to you, that your church would be uh, renewed in the hope that you've given us in the gospel. Um, Lord, I, 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 never, I never wish to speak false hope or, or, or not speak enough of the hope that you've given to us. I, I pray that I have done justice to the text um, that we've kind of pressed forward into tonight. I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, water those truths that are true um, and that you would, by your grace, um, have closed our ears to anything that might would be untrue. Um, but I, I pray that, that this sermon was God-glorifying, Christ-glorifying, um, and that, that your church would grow um, through it. And, and I don't mean in, in numbers. Um, my hope ultimately is that is that the few that are that are here, that their hearts and lives would be changed. Um, I just pray that you would um, that you would show yourself to us in ways that uh, maybe we never anticipated. Lord, that as we press on into this life, that you would teach us, that you would give us wisdom, uh, that we would um, embrace who it is that you've called us to, and that we would live lives that would glorify you in action, in word, uh, and in the hope in which we hold to. It's in Christ's name, and it is for his glory.